So, uh, as many of you know, we don't choose our readings for each Sunday, they choose us. Uh, Our three-year lectionary, uh, it guides us through the whole council of Scripture, not every Scripture, but through the, the, the breadth of Scripture. Some Sundays are more challenging than others, not least of which is one that begins, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Chances are some of you are hoping that I'm going to tackle this, while others of you are anxiously hoping that I will not. But with only 25 minutes, I can really only poke at it a bit, and I'm going to do that. And I think that will be enough to be both informative and hopefully encouraging. First, I need to set the stage. Just give me a few minutes to talk about what I think is lying under this, and it's something that really lies under the way we operate in faith and in life. One of the words you might hear quite a bit around village is tension. Not referring to relationship tension between people, but the kind that exists between two differing differing values or differing views that can exist together, but they're not exactly the same. If you think about it, tension shows up in life every day. Telling someone the truth while caring about their feelings is a tension. Doing what's best for the group and for the individual is often intention, isn't it? What you want and what you need are often intention. And as you probably know, there are no shortage of theological, biblical tensions for Christians. The one true God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there is no metaphor that works. Related to that, God is Spirit. It's clear in Scripture. And neither male nor female, but Jesus refers to God as Father, so that we can understand the relationship that we have with Him and to Him. Faith and works, they're a functional tension, right? Are good works enough to redeem us? No. Can we simply believe in God with no concern or or just a selective concern for His commands? Also no. Is God sovereign? Yes. Are we responsible for our choices? Also yes. We're not robots. Is the Bible occasional or universal in its teaching? Yes. Put simply, all of the Bible is for us, but not all of the Bible is to us or even about us. This is a tension. I heard someone describe tension with the metaphor of a rubber band, stretching it out. As long as the two ends, so to speak, stay connected while stretched, the tension creates strength. Suspension bridges, they exist only because of this kind of strength in tension, and it's more than physics. As Christians, we talk about another really important tension, and it's the one that is going to be specifically important for today, the already and the not yet. Christ has already triumphed over sin and death through His cross and resurrection. He is the Lord of the whole world, and His reign has already been inaugurated. But it's not yet fully consummated, not fully come to bear on all things and all people in the world. And this isn't just cosmic or eschatological, as we say, the fancy word for talking about the end times. It's not just cosmic or eschatological, it's personal too. I've already come to know and love Christ But my wife especially will tell you, it has not perfected me, not even close. It hasn't eliminated all my doubts or kept me from losing the plot sometimes. 
Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 2 that by grace we are already somehow seated with Christ in the heavenly places, which is incredible to think about. But also by grace, we're still working it out and walking it out. Most days we don't feel seated with Christ in the heavenly places, do we? We feel seated in traffic or in our offices or in a hard situation in our families. I wish that this was linear, what it means to belong to Christ. I wish that I just got better every day. As athletes just say over and over again, it's become this trope that I'm so tired of. We're just trying to get better every day. It's annoying. Just stop. (laughs) We're becoming who we are in fits and starts sometimes, aren't we? It's a dynamic thing to belong to Jesus. We are already and not yet. Does that make sense? The church needs to live with this kind of self-understanding to make sense of a lot of our story. This tension needs to be at the forefront. Think with me for a moment of the church as a big family getting their annual photo taken. How many of you love those big big family photos? Zero. One human. One human likes these in here. I don't like them. These big family photos. The photographer finally gets everyone to smile and to stand up straight. She snaps the picture and everyone then goes back to a reality wherein half of us are hangry and annoyed because this was supposed to be over at noon and it's already one o'clock. There's groaning and there are grievances. It's a problem though when we confuse the photo with the reality as though our message to the world is, well look at us how happy and smiley we are and well-adjusted we are. But the truth is, we're a family, amid all the groaning, amid all the grievances, actually we're showing the world the imperfect picture of imperfect people trying imperfectly to be reconciled to a perfect God and to one another because He has reconciled us to Himself. There's tension. The church at her best is not made up of people who are at any given time in or out, but moving in a holy direction together, as hard as that is, sometimes stumbling in these hungry and these unruly and these impatient bodies, trying to yield to the Spirit with all of our aspirations of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, things not to be confused with a sudden smile on command. Our message and ministry of reconciliation is evident and operative in the drama and in the deep work of growing up into Christ together, groaning up into Christ together while living in a world that's hard on everybody, body, mind, and spirit. That's a serious tension, isn't it? And to be honest, I believe this is what we have to offer the world. But what does it have to do with Mark 13 and the abomination of desolation, you're wondering? As Christians living in the already and not yet, we are prophetic. We are prophetic. There's no other kind. The future is a central part of how we see and understand the world's present, its purpose, its history, and its destiny. It's how we live in the present, and it informs the way we think about this constant, this strange, persistent, prophetic, and apocalyptic story being told, these moments in the Bible Jesus himself instructs us about the apocalyptic events and patterns in the world, calling us to do what? Pay attention, to stay awake, to be on guard. This means that we must live with the tension of both urgency and patience. 
That's a prophetic tension. By urgency, I don't mean immediacy. I mean importance. We're not anxious, but we are aware. At our best, we have a sensitivity to the temporary, the fragile, the volatile nature of life as we know it. We know that life is like this, but also at our best, we know the world is a place in the current time, in the contemporary. It's a place of God's meaningful presence and redeeming work today, and that our time and lived experience truly is meaningful even in the midst of tribulation, hard times. So in our gospel reading today, Jesus is midstream in his response to one of his disciples' giddiness about Jerusalem's grandeur, and I hinted at it last week. The disciple said this, he said, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see the, these great buildings? There will, this is a good, a good place to, to stop. Like he's just seen them, of course, but Jesus is saying, do you see these? He wants them to see them differently. He says, there will not be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. What we get on the face of Jesus' response to this disciple is a prophetic picture of the whole terrifying drama of the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Jesus sees it. But that's not all we get. That's not all Jesus sees, and I'm going to talk about that more in a minute. Let me give you some background to this. Mark is probably writing this gospel about a decade after this war happened, this first Jewish-Roman war when this chaos occurs. So he notes in verse 14, as we heard today, that the reader will have a reference point for what Jesus is foreseeing. Let the reader understand. At least some of a reference point for it. There had been a massive riot in Jerusalem against Rome uh, in the year 66. And that riot was so successful uh, that they had even set up a provisional government. It looked like things were going to be going, you know, they were going well against Rome. But four years later, three days before the Passover, when Jerusalem is swelling over with, with people who, had, who were coming on pilgrimage to be there for the Passover, the emperor Vespasian sent his son Titus and 70,000 soldiers to face half that many Jewish fighters. The war lasted about five months. There were some early successes for the Jews. But then when it was all said and done, somewhere between 350,000 and a million people were killed, and many more of them taken into slavery. That temple was a focal point in Jesus' ministry. The 40-plus year process of construction was nearly complete. It was, to so many, it was a sign that God could now be with His people again and that He was with His people. And now look what's happening. They've gained some level of independence. It was, to so many, a sign of God's presence. To many, if not most, the temple was a sign of an inevitability. Israel's prophets would return, and she would rise again out of the ashes of exile, rise again uh, from beneath Roman oppression and occupation. You had some groups like the Sadducees. For them, this might happen a little more diplomatically. For the Pharisees, it was going to be more of a ceremonial, religious uh, movement driven by a purity that God is going to reward for the zealots, it would be militaristic as God would return to the temple and God himself would fight for Israel. That was the hope. 
And for the Essenes, the temple was actually a contrast, a foil. It was a distinction for people who should be seeking God in the wilderness, just as the prophets had done, praying and studying the Scriptures. The Sadducees were sophisticated. The Pharisees were serious. The Zealots were seditious. And the Essenes were sequestered. But the temple was all a focal point, or it was a focal point for all of them. For all of them, it cast a very long shadow. But in one generation... It came to nothing. So Jesus is seeing something akin to what the prophet Daniel sees. and We heard part of that prophecy today in our reading from Daniel. He foresaw another abomination of desolation. He saw an embodiment of blasphemy and chaos and destruction. Daniel's prophecy was understood to be fulfilled 200 years earlier, but you know, before Jesus is talking here, when the Greek Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes, he built a pagan altar right on top of the altar of burnt offering, and he sacrificed a pig to Zeus. And the Israelites went crazy, as you might imagine. You can find that story in the Apocrypha in the two books of the Maccabees. Jesus could have been seeing the Emperor Caligula, who, not unlike Antiochus Epiphanes, he, he did something similar in 40 AD, heightening tensions by putting his own statue in the Jewish temple. Or Jesus could be seeing Rome's armies in general, not Caligula as an embodiment, but Rome's armies which Luke's gospel seems to emphasize if you read the same story in that parallel. He could have seen what the first century historian Josephus saw. Josephus was a Jew who actually fought in that war. And he was taken captive and he became a historian for the emperor. Initially, Caesar had ordered that the temple be spared, and that's important. But things got out of hand, as they often do in war. Here's how Josephus describes it. He said, as they neared the sanctuary, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's commands and urged the men in front to throw in more firebrands. Round the altar, the heaps of corpses grew higher and higher, while down the sanctuary steps poured a river of blood, and the bodies of those killed at the top slithered to the bottom. And he concludes the story by writing, It was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. This is part of what Jesus sees. But he's seeing further and he's seeing wider. He's seeing the persecution that his disciples will face in the coming years. He's seeing a pattern of wars and of turmoil and upheaval. He's seeing more hardship. He's seeing more exile. And you might say Jesus is not only seeing history, Jesus is seeing theology, which is a pattern for us. With Daniel, he's seeing a parade of apocalypses, ends and new beginnings that are part of the larger ongoing drama of the world. This apocalypse for Jerusalem is certainly a turning point. 
And here's what Jesus goes on to say and what immediately follows our reading today. And we need to read it more widely to make sense of this. He says in verse 24, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, like the prophets before him, Jesus is using cosmic language. He's using this idea of this celestial phenomena really just to emphasize the magnitude of what's going on. But that's not to say that there will not be some clear phenomena going on when Jesus is crucified. And when Jesus dies, there is, the sky is darkened. So that's part of the, the, the broader story that Jesus is telling here and what the broader vision that he's seeing. But things are this significant for the whole earth, for the whole cosmos to be shaken. And Jesus reads the prophets in his own Bible with a double or a layered reference. Doing what they did was connecting the past, the near future, and also this finality, this consummation that's coming all to one another in a pattern. Have you ever, do you know what a, like a, a Russian nesting doll is? You know what that is? The little dolls where you take one apart and there's another little one inside and you take another one and another one and then there's, there's a little tiny one. I often wondered how far could they go? Like, you know, down to where they're like tiny. You open one, right? And you find there's another inside. But in the case of biblical prophecy, you find that the doll inside is strangely bigger than the one you just opened. They have the future in them. They have anticipation. They're close-ups of the big picture. And this is what Jesus is teaching. So like the prophets, Jesus himself sees in these layers what's now, what's next, and what lies far beyond. Jesus doesn't see the apocalypse of Israel in isolation. The prophets don't see things in isolation. They see well beyond their own generation and beyond a next generation. You see this in the Psalms and in Daniel and in, you see it in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. There's more in there. They see the Messiah and they don't know they're seeing the Messiah. So he doesn't see the apocalypse of Israel in isolation. He connects it to his promised second coming, actually, in verse 26. This is why he came, telling his fellow Jews to repent or perish. This wasn't about you're going to go to heaven or to hell. It was to call to them to turn from the futility of their political and nationalistic hope. Why? It's not going to work. Their vision of salvation is too small. So Jesus is giving them another vision. But this is also why he will return, because the world is groaning and will groan until it's delivered from a kind of bondage to the cycle of wars and tribulations that are born of the cycle of sin and corruption. And we are witnesses of that in virtually every generation. Verses 30 and 31 are really important to this point about both what Jesus is seeing in the near term and in the long term. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. There's the near term. But he goes on to say, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He's connecting them to the bigger picture. And then he goes on to tell a short parable about a man who leaves his servants in charge of the household, maybe you know it, without knowing exactly when he will return. 
And Jesus teaches his disciples in this moment about the kind of urgency that must mark their lives, even though they've got to go about their lives in the everyday. He goes on to say three times directly to them, stay awake. They're meant to see the world's tribulations with prophetic eyes. Stay awake. Living in the tension between urgency and patience. These moments, the ones that you and I are living, as pivotal as they are, always have more inside them. So what do we do with this? I think we can respond a couple different ways, and I think they're as different as being asleep and being awake. We could take the Jeffersonian route, and we could ignore the supernatural and the prophetic. Thomas Jefferson made his own Bible. I don't know if you knew that. He, he left all the, uh, that stuff out, all this, the, the supernatural and all the prophetic stuff out. He just wanted a selective morality, just religion that relates to civics and culture. He picked his own. I heard recently an author and historian, uh, Arthur, Arthur Goldwag, say, as religions mature, and this is a secular writer, he says, as religions mature, they develop an expression for the masses, such as people who want church on Sundays. But then within them, there are people who want to know and experience God. And I think a lot of our modern Christianities, modern liberal Christianities in particular, owe a lot to Jefferson and they represent this very recognition, this secular recognition that people are going to be religious. It's just the way people are. They're going to be moral, try to be, and even selectively spiritual. So they focus, a lot of these Christianities focus on religion that's helpful in the limited, helpful and limited to the here and the now. What's going to work? What's going to jibe with culture? It's, kinda, it's, it's a kind sort of uh, Christianity. It's moral, it's inclusive, and hopefully headed toward a utopian world. Married to a certain kind of politics and a particular version of reality. What do we do? We make the demonic, we, we psycho- psychologize it and allegorize it. The apocalyptic and prophetic are just reduced to their symbols, not an actual coming reality or spiritual conflict. The resurrection is a beautiful idea to be embraced like a caterpillar emerging as a butterfly out of a chrysalis. What a wonderful idea. Here's the box we have for religions, what we want and need from them. So how do we fit Christianity into it? That's the move. And expunge it in some sense of all of this prophetic, all this anticipation, all of this tension. But our other option is actually to live with the tension. Let's call it staying awake in the call to know and experience God. The tension of knowing that there are, in the course of history, many ends, many transitions that give us renewed clarity on the way to a new beginning, on the way to the full and final end when what has been proclaimed is fulfilled once and for all. Friends, Jesus has told the church and is telling the church that the arc of history, of your history and my history, is longer and it's more stable than our lives feel like in the present. That's how we make sense of history. We serve a God who hasn't just given us prophecies and hasn't just given us platitudes. Because who wants that? We serve a God 
who has done far more. What has he done? He has entered into this chaos. He has entered into history and all of its tribulations, and it was unable to undo him. It was an end, but not the end. And this is what he's offering us. What Jesus offers by suffering himself at one of these pinnacles of human corruption and pagan power is the way to live in the world without the world and all its chaos and all its instability living in us. It's a way to see, to make sense of things, to live and to hope. We know the world is in crisis. When isn't it? When hasn't it been? at least in the eyes of those who are fleeing to some hills or another, those for whom the stars feel like they're falling from the sky. And it always feels that way for some people somewhere. Truth is, there are probably more doomsday prophets in our current era than in any other before us. And what's interesting is they're not religious. They're political and they're scientific we're rightly concerned about the devastating effects of bad politics and the effects that can, that can have on the stability of nations and the well-being of their citizens. We're rightly concerned about the fate of the planet due to industrialization and con uh, consumption. We know there's an unrelenting power and resource race between nations like has never been seen before. We know that information now spilling over every bank with a warped view of truth and reality, it has become both an intentional and an unintentional force for destabilizing countries and families and the individual heart and mind. But if anyone should not be surprised or dismayed, it's those who know that the world is groaning. And we groan with it. It's those who know why it's groaning. The world has always been destined for rescue, dependent on it, dependent on God's sustaining help in the near and the long term. And that's how we should see it. And friends, we shouldn't be wringing our hands, but folding them. Folding them as much as we are using them as ministries, as tools, instruments of reconciliation, showing the world that there's a better way to be together in all the chaos. We should be alive and awake to the will of God, heaven breaking in through our lives on earth. So I'm going to close by saying this. We're headed into Advent in two weeks. It invites us, it's already inviting us as we anticipate a new Christian year, the beginning of a new, or telling our story yet again. It invites us into another rhythm, but also into an urgency a call to stay awake, a call to fast, and a call to pray, connecting with the history of Israel as they longed for their Messiah. It's a call for us to remember that He has come, and He will come, that He has died, He has risen, and He will come again. It's a call to remember that all the tribulations of this life and of history, they are the birth pains of a world destined for a new beginning. The world Jesus made possible and inevitable through his own end and his new beginning. Do you believe it? Lord, we pray, even so, come Lord Jesus. Help us to live urgent lives awake 
to your promises and wake to what's going on in the world, not lulled to sleep by comfort, not lulled to sleep by culture, not lulled to sleep by other stories that help us resolve the tension of the already and the not yet. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you do your work in our hearts and minds to remind us that we are indeed sons and daughters of the living God whose plan is perfect and it will come to be. Lord, tether our hearts to what is and what is to come. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.